You know, I shout at the radio a lot. Find I find I shout at the radio quite a lot. What makes you shout at the radio? <laughs> um, well, I suppose because when I've been when when you're so involved in in, in Irish politics, domestic politics, and international politics, because I was in foreign affairs for so long, one feels one has an investment in how things pan out. I I, I generally find myself shouting at the radio, particularly I, when I have to tell you, uh, yeah. I shout at the radio myself a little bit as well too. <laughs> it tends to be it's a passion. Hello again. In this episode of Insights, Liz O'Donnell talks about her life in politics, her decade as junior minister during the peace process, also the influence of the Progressive Democrats, the huge shock she felt on losing her seat, and now her role as chairperson of the Road Safety Authority. Liz O'Donnell, you're very welcome to the Insights studio. Um, it's hard to believe that it's over 15, nearly 16 years since you left politics. First of all, what are you doing with yourself now and how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've had an interesting time. I think I was young enough when I left politics to have a life after politics, which is good. Uh, I never intended to stay in politics until I was old um, and to retirement age. Um, but at the same time, I suppose, had I been re-elected, I probably would be still on the train. You know, it's sort of, politics is that sort of thing. You stay on the train until you're pushed off. Um, but since then, I've had a life. I actually had an interesting experience. I made a four-part documentary on Irish aid to Africa, which was uh, far away up close, which RT produced, was uh, very, very good. And I enjoyed that. That kind of that kind of brought me over the hump, really, in terms of getting over losing my seat. The shock of losing one seat is is quite immense, actually, because what happens is we all lost our seats. Actually, the party, the party kind of imploded at that election uh, in 2007. And uh, there was a, there was an air of uncertainty about whether the party could continue at all. Mary Harney uh, and Noel Grealish were the only survivors. So the rest of us just licked our wounds. I mean, I went I went under the duvet for a week to, to recover myself. Uh, and because losing your seat, it's much more than a job uh, being being a TD. I'd been a TD for 15 years, so it was very much part of my persona my public persona, my private persona. I kind of didn't know who I was uh, for a while, uh, but it takes a while to recover. But then there was the relief. Uh, actually, I was exhausted from being in politics. I hadn't realised it. And as I said, you'd stay on the train until you were pushed off because you live life at a pace which is not normal. You're obsessed with news. It's, it's very preoccupying as a job. And being in a small party, there's always a, a, a huge responsibility. We had more responsibilities than if you were in a big party because uh, there's no really, there's no such thing as the backbenches. Um, everybody, everybody has has a lot of responsibility uh, in a small party. You're best known, I think, in terms of your public persona at the moment as being chairperson of the Road Safety Authority. Now, that's something I'd like to come back and talk about later. But what else is going on? Do you have other irons in the fire? 
professionally? Well, for three years I worked for uh, MSD, which is a big multinational pharmaceutical company employing thousands of people in Ireland. I was the director of communications uh, and policy and government affairs. So that was a really nice, it was a really nice change for me because I'd always worked in the public service. I'd never worked in the private sector, particularly for a a corporation like that. And that was a big learning curve. I really enjoyed it. Um, And that uh, lasted until just before COVID. So then COVID came and then nothing happened. I was doing some consultancy work uh, from time to time and a bit of broadcasting. And then I was appointed to the Road Safety Authority in 2014. Um, so I'm finishing up. I was reappointed in 2019. So it's two five year terms. I'm finishing up there next October. So I'll have a bit more space because it is quite demanding chairing a state body. It's a busy state body and um, a very important one. And I, I take it very seriously. There have been dramatic changes, Liz, as we know, uh, since you left politics, just in the makeup of the doll and also the f- formation of different kinds of government. What do you make of the present uh, arrangement? Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in government with the Greens. What's your assessment of how they're doing? Well, you know, I, I, I like coalitions. I mean, you know, we, we started the trend of coalitions with Fianna Fáil and I think coalitions work very well. I think they're good for democracy. Uh, I think single party governments are, are inherently dangerous because there's a danger of no counter uh, opinion uh, or no diversity of views at the cabinet table. Um, our coalition governments with Fianna Fáil uh, went very well. And I think that uh, the current centrist government, as I would call it, of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, I think has been very good for the country. It's got us through the pandemic and of course the Greens are there now, but it's got us through the, the pandemic and very difficult times economically recovering from uh, the economic uh, collapse. And I hope the centre holds, you know, I'm not sure that it will uh, because Sinn Féin is polling very well. So big changes in Irish politics. I watch it, you know, I shout at the radio a lot. I find I find I shout at the radio quite a lot. What makes you shout at the radio? <laughs> um well, I suppose because when I've been when when you're so involved in 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 Irish politics, domestic politics and international politics because I was in foreign affairs for so long, one feels one has an investment in how things pan out. Um, so I, I, I generally find myself shouting at the radio, particularly I, when... I have to tell you, uh, I yeah. shout at the radio myself a little bit as well too. <laughs> it tends to be, it's a passion. Um, so, and also I'm a radio addict. I mean, there's a radio in every room in the house and uh, as a result, my kids don't listen to the radio. They only listen to music. They don't listen to um, current affairs. And that's probably a legacy of, of them growing up with a, a very busy mum and a very preoccupied mum. You mentioned about the polls and whether the centre will or will not hold. I mean, Sinn Féin are really on the rise. They, they came in, when you went into government with, uh, with Fianna Fáil in 97, there was one Sinn Féin TD. Cuivin or Cuelon, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. now they have, they're into the mid-30s, depending on how you count them and who's gone and who's stayed. But they are up there. They're, they've obviously got more support than any other party in the polls. I think they got more votes than any other party at the last election. Is it pretty much inevitable that uh, we'll be referring in in the not too distant future to perhaps the Taoiseach Ms Macdonald? It could happen. It could happen. And how do you view that prospect? Um, With interest, actually, because um, when I was involved in the negotiations in Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement and thereafter, we hadn't envisaged that Sinn Féin would take so well to politics. I mean, our 
big ambition was to get them into politics and get them to disavow uh, what had gone in the past, uh, IRA violence, um, etc. Um, so in some ways it's good that politics has worked for Sinn Féin because the peace has endured and that's what we ha- that's what we wanted. Uh, had had politics not worked for them north of north of the border and now recently more recently s- south of the border, uh, I think we could be in danger of losing the peace. So uh, that's why it's important that politics has worked. And I always say that they've brought all the stamina and commitment of war into politics. They're very committed to the work that they do, and. That's admirable in a way and that they have built up their support, particularly amongst young people who don't have a memory of the troubles. Um, They have built up that support through their policies. And of course, they are in a prime position, a very lucky position as as being the main party of opposition. So anytime anything happens in current affairs, they are first out with a press release, they're first out with a spokesperson and they have plenty of good spokespersons. So I can see how that's working for them. I can see how a small party can can grow into a big party um, if the time is right and the conditions that like the political conditions are just right for them. Yes, and I suppose the the mistakes made by previous governments are at least the failures to achieve our uh, ambitions, objectives and deliver on promises are there to be exploited by an opposition party as they have been down the ages. Um, I'm thinking, for instance, of the fact that, you know, it's not too long ago since the country was run by the Troika, led by the IMF. um, And that, if you like, followed on directly from the actions of the government of which you were a member, albeit in the period after you lost your seat. Yeah, I remember when when I lost my seat, um, uh, my mother, my late mother, um, uh, had had a stroke actually. But in some ways, things happen for a reason. You know, I remember her saying to me, oh, maybe it's the best thing for you. You know, you've had 15 years in politics and maybe, you know, maybe it's maybe it's the best thing. And I was able to spend a lot of time with my mother and father, um, you know, uh, looking after them. Um, in their last years, which was good. And, and also I was able to go back to having time with my my own children. So, you know, I, I remember that time because it was kind of the time that the world collapsed economically. Uh, 2007, the banks, all the rest of it, and the, the economy collapsed, the building, uh, the building industry collapsed. Uh, so in many ways, I was glad I wasn't in that, yeah, in that but government. There, there's a sense, though, from talking to people who were in that government that, look, you know, we, we didn't really make that many mistakes. We followed the advice we got, uh, mm-hmm. whether it was from the OECD or at least we accepted their analysis. Uh, and, you know, there was regulation there, clearly not as effective as it might have been. But the people have a way, though, of identifying who they hold responsible and, you know, taking out their uh, revenge or Im- imposing a punishment. Yeah, that's true. And there's no doubt that uh, that government that I was a part of um, from 97 to 2002, uh, perhaps we made mistakes. There was the whole um, stamp duty issue, if you remember, Um the stamp duty. There was a there was an attempt to reduce stamp duty and a proposal, and that kind of kind of really queered the pitch, and the property market started to collapse. And that was really Michael McDool was in the middle of that. That's right. There, yeah, there was. I mean, I remember I remember those times. But there was a there was it was a period of uncertainty about how um, after such a, a, a kind of a, a thundering economy that there was a there were there were cautionary tales of how things could collapse and then we were going to bust. Um, but it was wasn't clear how it could be stopped at the time. 
Yeah, I mean, looking back now, and it's all very well to say, oh, with the benefit of hindsight, but what might have been done differently, do you think? Um, gosh, I don't know. Um, Was there too much of a PD influence in government? I mean, you did punch above your weight. It's been widely accepted that Charlie McCreevy was basically a PD in Fianna Fáil clothing yeah. uh, when he was Minister for Finance and before that as well. Um, maybe there was that sort of, you know, unrestrained, you know, market forces that you sense, in a sense, fomented uh, politically and economically. I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure. Because I'm not an economist, but I, and, but I do remember at the time feeling that it was too good to last, you know, the, 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 the way the economy was growing and the, the wealth that was being created and the, the price of houses and all of that. There, the, it looked as if, as in other economies, you were, uh, uh, there was going to be a bust. Yeah. You know, after the boom. And um, I suppose... The thing and I, about- I, I mean, Bertie says we all partied. I don't think everybody partied. I, th- I don't think there was... There was an air of recklessness around and people were investing in property, you know, in a reckless way um, that, that couldn't really be sustained, I think. There was a sense, though, that or was there that Charlie McCreevy, he knew to, how to work the electoral system. Um, and, uh, you know, you had things like the SSIA, the special savings yeah. accounts. And but he wasn't afraid then to hit the brakes. And I think the government parties paid a bit of a price in local elections. And, you know, <laughs> there are different views on whether he was sent or whether he volunteered or went voluntarily to Brussels. But essentially, you know, he was he was out of the picture. Um, and then we had Brian Cam- who was maybe a more traditional Fianna Fáil type minister who espoused looking after the um, the more needy sec- sections of society, and essentially, you know, he didn't hit the brakes in the way in the way that McCreevy might have done, which would have caused political unpopularity. But we maybe paid a big price, and that was basically Bertie orchestrated the whole thing. Yeah, I listened to Charlie McCreevy's interview with you on the two tribes, and it was interesting. Um, I mean, he was quite happy to go to 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 Brussels as commissioner. Um, I think he did. You listen to the Mary Hannafin one where she said oh, he was I didn't. sent. No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't get to Mary Han. I listened to Mary Harney as well, and it was so interesting because all those people go back a long way. I mean, when you think about Mary Hannafin, Mary Hannafin was at the table. Um, when when Char- when Charlie ha- when Desamali was expelled from Fianna Fáil, um, all those years ago, um, and Mary in, Harney, the Fianna, in the Fianna Fáil party, that's in the right, Fianna Fáil yeah, party, the yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she and she must have been really young. She must have been a kid. Um, but uh, also Mary Harney and Charlie go back such a long way. And Bertie, I mean, it was very interesting that just to to because that was a time that I wasn't involved in politics. It was very interesting to 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 hear, you know, how Fianna Fáil worked as a political party and how those relationships endured right through, uh, you know, subsequent governments, even though there were coalitions. Yeah. Um, your own background, Liz, um, I mean, OK, when you got into politics, I think you were fairly comfortably off uh, professionally and personally, but it wasn't always like that in your life, was it? Well, I was. I always see myself as an accidental politician, really. Um, uh, I was involved. I was. It's very, my children were very small. I had done law in college, and I had worked in a big law firm for a while, and then I took a career break to look after my babies. And um, during that time, I uh, I met Mary Harney at a, a women's environmental conference in Trinity, and. Um, I had never met a minister before, actually, so I, I wasn't really involved in politics at all. Um, I had an interest, though, um, and after the conference, it was called Women and the Environment, What Can We Do? Uh, and I was there as part of a delegation from a women's group, an environmental group. And 
after the conference, Mary Harney, who was then junior minister for the environment and had been very high profile in that she had managed to bring through regulations to ban uh, smoky coal. So um, the, the committee brought her for uh, uh, a dinner in a restaurant, the Troc, the Trocadero. Um, and uh, she she kind of put her evil eye on me. You know, she's sort of saying, what are you doing with this group? Why aren't you involved in politics? And of course, I had no answer for it. It's just, I said, well, I don't know anything. I don't know anybody in politics. You're the first uh, minister I've ever met. So, um, but she kind of hounded me. And, you know, I think Pat Rabbit called Mary Harney subsequently the the Simon Cowell of Irish politics. You know, she was, all, <laughs> she was always looking, she was always looking for talent, talent spotting. So she persuaded me to run in the local elections in Rathmines where my, my little girl was at school in Kildare Place and uh, she kind of persuaded me and she persuaded me that it wouldn't be too onerous that the meetings are in the evening and I wouldn't you know I, I wouldn't be taken away from my kids that much and that's true but I was the only one elected I was elected in those local elections and I was the only PD in Ireland, uh, in Dublin, elected. So I was the only one PD on the Dublin City Council. So I learned on my feet. I mean, I learned pretty fast those yeah, two years. Before you went to college, before you got into oh, politics, yeah. you you learned a lot in the maybe the University of Life uh, as a student, as a secondary student. And then I think you spent a little bit of time outside of Ireland before you came back to Trinity. I did. Yeah, I worked in the bank in London. Um, because I grew up in Limerick and uh, there was at that time I was too young to actually go to university so I did a kind of a secretarial course in Mrs Max which was a famous kind of typing and secretarial course in Limerick and I knew I'd get a job out of that and in those days you could get a job at the bank or the civil service or you know any good job any of the banks would take you on if you had good typing and uh, secretarial skills so and a good leaving search which I had but I just wasn't interested in college I was a bit young so I got a job in the bank and went to London and um, which was fine. But after two years, I realised I, I really should go to college and take my parents' advice. So I came back and went to Trinity. And uh, I, that's where really my life changed because I, I loved Trinity. I loved the liberal ethos of Trinity and I loved the people I met and I just thrived. OK, then you, you went from Trinity into the legal profession. Yeah, um, I didn't qualify as a solicitor. I had no money. Um, I got married very soon after leaving college uh, to Michael um, and uh, he was doing the bar and uh, I just didn't have the money. The two of us to do the bar would have been out of the question. So uh, I just didn't have the money. So I got various jobs uh, which were legally related. I mean, I worked all sorts of places. I worked for Noel Pearson in the theatre um, company, Noel Pearson Productions. Um, and then I worked uh, I worked for <laughs> I worked for the McGill Book of Irish Politics for Vincent Brown, uh, selling ads. So I did all sorts of things. And, and then I ended up in McCann Fitzgerald uh, Solicitors, uh, working in the litigation uh, um, department there. So um, then, then I took a career break to, and then after that I went back into politics. And uh, reflecting then on your time in politics after you've been out of it for about, I think, two or three years, uh, you, you spoke at an Oireachtas uh, committee about women's participation. You said, and I'm interested to know if you still believe this is the case, that politics in Ireland is tailor-made for men who have the support of wives. A two-person job, essentially, but where the public face is a man's with unfailing domestic backup. Well, certainly, when the time when I was in politics, that that was the case. Uh, I'm, I'm quite sure that most of my colleagues, there were only 20 women in the Dáil when I was elected. Um, 
and that was the highest ever number. Twenty of us were elected. I remember Una. Um, Claffy, she, Una she wrote the book. Yeah, book. the women yeah, who won. The yeah. women who won. So it was quite a, it was quite an achievement for twenty women to be elected, uh, and I was very conscious of that. Um, Out of one hundred and sixty, whatever. One hundred and sixty-six mm. deputies. There was twenty women, and when I left politics fifteen years later, there was only twenty-five, and it wasn't until the quotas came in. So I mean, progress and was it's now at kind snail's of in pace, around the thirty-seven. Yeah, thirty-seven. Yeah. I mean, but. What was clear, I mean, generally speaking, I'm not in favour of quotas in the corporate world, whatever. But I mean, in politics, we were not making a difference. There was no, like the pace of change was glacial, like nothing was happening. You know, in 15 years, only five more women had been elected. So um, it, it it was a very tough life. Now, I took to it very well, but it, it, it is very difficult for a woman with small children and my children were small. Whatever about if, if your children are older, I mean, it's much easier. But certainly at my stage, uh, my children were very small. What about women, though, with or without children? Because in recent times and certainly this year in the earlier part of it, we've been reading and hearing from women talking about the, the dreadful abuse they get, particularly yeah. on social media, which was less of a factor, much less of a factor uh, when you were an active politician. It wasn't there at all. I mean, social media only happened after I left politics, as I recall. Now, I did get hate mail, uh, handwritten hate mail, <laughs> the old fashioned way. Uh, and I got kind of uh, kind of crazy people calling into constituency offices, um, to Michael McDool's office, because I didn't have a constituency office because I did have a constituency office for a while, but there were kind of, I just felt afraid. Uh, there were kind of odd people calling into me and I always felt afraid if I was on my own. Um, so it wasn't necessary. I would meet people by appointment. I remember, I'll tell you a funny story. I was, wasn't was known for kind of having big constituency meetings in, in pubs and that's what I didn't do them. Uh, but I remember when I was up doing God's work with John O'Donoghue in the North, he was Minister for justice during the the peace talks and uh, he was obsessed about you know I have to get back home because Jackie Healy Ray was on the rampage about something and he was um, you know he was saying oh Jesus I have to go to about five constituency meetings all over the town for the weekend when I get home and I, he said, how do you manage that? And I said, oh, I don't do them. I meet people by appointment. And he said, it's dates you have. <laughs> <laughs> so his, wor- his world as a constituency TD and minister in a rural constituency is a completely different job description yeah, to a rural deputy. And that's the same for women. You know, I remember, you know, uh, whatever however difficult it was for me as a woman with small children at least I got home every night mm. you know there were people like Mary Coughlin whose small children were up in Donegal and she wouldn't see them from you know Tuesday to Thursday Do you, you remember know? the day John who became Kian Corla I think a reluctant Kian Corla yeah. and Jack Healy Ray assured him that you know the interests of the people in South Kerry would be yeah. well looked after by himself Exactly he was really And the whole doll laughed and Donoghue just managed to kind of I suppose yeah. Not so much a smile as a rictus. Yeah, yeah. Well, they knew, he knew that he was in difficulty with uh, the popularity of um, the Healy Rays. T- talking about changes, um, there there have been huge changes, social changes in the last um, 10, 15 years. I mean, would you have expected to see, for instance, same-sex marriage approved in a referendum? Similarly, the Eighth Amendment basically blown away by the people in a referendum in 2018. Yes, I did expect those changes to happen. I knew that, you know, what had, you know, what had been achieved. It was a slow development, really, evolution of social change in Ireland. But certainly a lot of it was started when I was in politics 
But when I came into politics, there was, you know, there was no divorce. Uh, there was there was no abortion. Uh, homosexuality was illegal. Um, you know, it was it was a different world. But yeah, we but spent our time changing, you know, reforming and modernising modern Ireland. I mean, I think and I would like to think the PDs and the Labour Party and, of course, Fianna Fáil were part of that change of changing hearts and minds around those personal issues. And again, that Fianna Fáil PD government, I think in 2002, prior to the general election, there was another uh, referendum on abortion brought forward uh, which very narrowly failed because I think there was a kind of an unlikely coalition between if you like the Dana side of things who wanted more rigorous uh, regulation or prohibition and people who wanted a loosening of the terms and conditions but essentially it was the idea at that time was to to tighten the availability or or reduce it yeah, that's true. Uh, it, it took a few goes at it to get it right, in my view. Um, but eventually, the Irish people did support the referendum to actually make abortion more available. Uh, and similarly, all of those those ancient wars we had about even contraception, uh, it seems like historic now that, you know, that, that it was really only through the AIDS crisis that condoms were made uh, more freely available. Um, you know, it, 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 that kind of came before the, the individual rights of women and men to yeah. control fertility. You, you made a fairly um, forthright speech, I think, in the mid-noughties, talking about the need to show less deference to the church, the Catholic Church in Ireland. This was against the background of the Ferns Report, uh, as I recall it. Yeah. And you talked about uh, ending the cosy phone calls between all Hallows and government buildings. Um which I think got right up the nose of your um, Taoiseach mm. of the day, Bertie O'Hearn. Yeah, but I believe there was too much of a, a cosy relationship, uh, not part- not particularly with Bertie O'Hearn, but, you know, with Fianna Fáil and, and successive governments, there had been uh, a, a deference shown to the church. And that was fairly obvious from the Ferns report. The Ferns report, I, I, what happened was I read the Ferns report in full. I was sick. I had the flu and I was at home. So uh, usually people don't get time, but particularly busy deputies, to read the entirety of a report but I actually was in bed sick so I read it and I was like a lunatic but I had to go in to the doll and speak on it I just only got a few minutes but I was just horrified at, at, at what was revealed in the Ferns report and it just showed that you know things had to change now ultimately um, uh, it was actually Enda Kenny who had the, the total swipe at the at the Vatican uh, but that's what I was saying I was saying like that there was still too much deference shown to the, to, uh, the Catholic Church authorities in relation to the handling of child sex abuse. That's an issue that I was very involved in as an opposition TD uh, because victims would come to me um, about the non-prosecution of child abuse cases. There was a complete um, mismatch between the number of cases being reported and then subsequent prosecutions. I was constantly asking the Taoiseach of the day, which was John Bruton, why was this discrepancy? Why was there so few pro- prosecutions for child abuse cases? And that was around the time of Gibney and all of those people who, you know, people who got away with it because there was a there was a, a kind of. This a, is George Gibney, the swimming George coach. George Gibney, swimming swimming coach who abused abused many many children and swimmers under his care. He had been prosecuted, but he had managed to avoid the prosecution by claiming that there was too many years had passed before. Um, yeah, but that didn't have anything to do with the church. That particular no, no, one. but that generally child sex abuse was not being treated or prosecuted mm-hmm. adequately by the state. Uh, so the, the the church's involvement then was on the the, the, the paedophiles and the Brendan Smith case. I was very involved in that tabling questions uh, to the Taoiseach of the day and the Attorney General of the day um, about the non prosecution and the non 
the non-extradition of Brendan Smith, which subsequently nearly brought down the government. And ultimately, I suppose, did. Yes, um, indeed, yeah. And um, at least it, it marked the end of Albert Reynolds in government and Labour walked out. But that's another story for another day and another right, conversation, right, perhaps. Right. Um, we talked a bit about Bertie Ahern and in his uh, autobiography 14 years ago, he recalled working with you as Minister of State at the Department of Foreign Affairs. And I want to quote just a few sentences from that. He said, Liz was in government as a member of the PDs. She did add glamour to our negotiating team, but you wouldn't want to underestimate her ability. Uh, as Liz O'Donnell and and our Mo Molan would have told you the unionists weren't always used to dealing with women politicians, especially such formidable ones. And because her father had been a good GA man who played for Owen Rua in earlier times, and I think County Dublin as well, though he didn't mention that, uh, she knew how to banter with the best of us. What do you think of that now for a description? Discuss. My goodness, I, I didn't read that. Uh, so um, that's right. Bertie, is, Bertie was always uh, interested in my kind of GAA past, my heritage. My father played for Dublin and, and he was Irish champion sprinter. So it was, my background was a sports family rather than a political family. But uh, because he was in own row and uh, Bertie Hill was... Uh, a lot of Finnefalls said, "What? What the hell are you doing in the PD? You should be in Finnefall." But anyway, th- that's that's a matter of. I grew up in Limerick, and my parents are, were very fond yeah, of Des O'Malley. I, so. I, I, su- <laughs> I suppose you know that kind of a, a reference now to adding a touch of glamour. A sensitivity reader would probably advise uh, the publisher yeah. to remove that in this day and age. Ah, uh, yeah, I don't mind. I never mind any of that stuff. You know, uh, I, I, and I was young, and I was quite glamorous. Um, uh, I suppose at the time I was in my, I was only forty, so I didn't mind that. But I did get on with the unionists um, in the negotiations and I think they felt that I was a little bit different to Fianna Fáil and I was representing the PDs and the PDs as you know Sean always had a more nuanced view in relation to settling the, the problems in Northern Ireland um, going back to Mary Harney and Des, uh, the foundation but of the party. Did you find yourself uh, though at times patronised by people that you were dealing with uh, and maybe not just on the unionist side? No, I didn't. I never felt patronised during the talks. I mean, I was very proud of being on the team representing Mm. the Irish government in such historic talks. It was a great privilege. I took it very seriously, um, but I never felt patronised. No, I'm just wondering, might you have had occasionally maybe to overlook people referring to as a girl or something like that? No, the only only man who would get away with that was the late John Hume, who used to call me wee girl, uh, which is so sweet. Uh, He was a lovely man um, uh, and I got on great with him, but sometimes uh, in subsequent years when he was unwell, he couldn't remember my name and he used to call me wee girl. Yeah, I I remember actually at the launch of Bertie's book and he was starting to be unwell at that yeah. stage. Three times in the space of um, maybe half an hour, he asked me, "And who have we here?" So I know, yeah, it was, was a long, it was, was a very sad a, thing a decline. to watch that. But decline. it was because he was burnt out. You know, I mean, he had such a life in politics. When mm. you look at the the documentaries now, um, uh, you know, um, there's a recent documentary I just watched it last week. Once upon a time in Northern Ireland, mm. and it showed you know how far back it went for John Hume. You know, in the '60s, starting the civil rights movement and working so hard to get, Mm. you know, British rights for British citizens at the time. It was, you know, he was just trying to make the lives of people better and, and of course, always, you know, abhorred the slide into violence. 
Like, I remember fantastic watching man. Him in Washington at the National Press mm. Club, uh, a prestige location, prestige audience. And he spoke without a single note for half an hour mm. and feeling very proud of him, just the way he explained things oh, and yeah. just the path to peace. And he was an architect. He was the architect of the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, mm. his his kind of ideas and his aspirations and his 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 views really informed successive Irish governments, you know, towards the peace process. Yeah, um, it's been said as well, and I've seen and you know watched you and 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 engaged with you and Bertie at various occasions as well on the twenty fifth anniversary in recent times, recent weeks of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, that say the women coalition, women's coalition, they made a big contribution, but they weren't taken seriously by particularly maybe some of the unions who just were not used to dealing with women. That's true. They they, they suffered terrible abuse, actually, uh, in the talks parallel to the, to the actual talks. Uh, uh, but when I came, uh, well, George Mitchell did protect them, you know, and he wouldn't allow it. But outside of the proceedings, they, they took an awful lot of grief from unionists and the DUP um, uh, in particular. Um, no, I mean, what had passed for politics was name calling. Um, mm-hmm. For years, um, people didn't actually know each other. They just shouted at each other, and it was very—it was toxic masculinity. It was not a place for women. But it was ingenious that they took the opportunity to actually form a party to participate in the talks. It was genius, and they got elected. And they had two representatives at the talks, the same as you know the two governments. So it was amazing that they uh, they actually made their business to get elected and participate in the peace. Now, these women didn't fall out of the sky, as Monica keeps saying. You know, they had been involved in the civil rights movement uh, for the previous kind of, uh, you know, 10 years, 15 years at community level. Uh, And they came from different uh, settings. They came from academia, the professions, researchers. um, You know, they they were community activists, social workers. So they brought a completely different perspective to the talks and it was very valuable to the governments. So the governments governments did take them seriously, very seriously. Yeah, and of course, Mo Molum, there was a certain magic and maybe genius about her as well, even though she kind of fell foul of, of, of Tony Blair in the end and, and Peter Mandelson but she was an incredible uh, performer and that kind of abuse probably she let it just roll off her. But she was oh no she, they didn't well they they weren't very nice to Mo but they were actually they didn't know what to do with her because she was the most unusual uh, politician, I mean, male or female. Uh, she was extremely reforming in her nature, very unorthodox, very irreverent, uh, you know, but very intelligent. And she was extremely important. I think she was the first Secretary of State uh, for Northern Ireland who really got it, who really got it that there was a nationalist grievance that was not going to go away uh, unless it was there was a political settlement. And she really worked hard with the Republicans uh, to make that happen. Now, that put her on the wrong side of the unionists uh, in the talks but it was very important as confidence building and keeping keeping Republicans into the, the negotiation and process. Blair and Deherne as uh, Prime Minister and Taoiseach they were very focused on bringing in drawing in the Republicans Sinn Féin into active politics I think you acknowledged at the start that they've been far more successful than you might yeah. have anticipated but at the same time you were representing a party and the, the big figures there were Des O'Malley and Michael McDool, and they might have been looking a little bit askance 
at some of uh, the the, the treatment um, with Sinn Féin or the, the, the parlaying with Sinn Féin? I'm sure they were. I mean, and and so we subsequently heard that talks had been going on between Albert Reynolds and, and the Republican movement, um, secret talks, when we were in government with them. Now, you know, um, I think uh, if Des had known about that, we would have been pulling out of government. I mean, that's how strongly Des was, his feelings were. Um, so it was probably just as well that we didn't know that. Um, uh but during the talks, no, Des didn't kick up at all. Um, I mean, Michael McDougall lost his seat. Well, he had moved seat. on, I suppose. He had moved on, yeah. And uh, but Michael was out of gov- out of government. He lost his seat, you see, that time. So um, it was when later, when when Michael came back into justice, um, that um, he was dealing with with Sinn Fein at a later stage. And I think. Uh, justifiably he was very frustrated at the lack of decommissioning and all the rest of it I mean as I was um, so I'm sure you know, I was conscious that I was a P, I was a PD and there were times when uh, there were requests and I was I was worried I mean I was worried I don't think I could have put my hand on my heart and say that I was sure there was going to be decommissioning uh, we weren't sure uh, and but we were we were suspending our critical faculties at some at some points in the process It took all of seven years for it to it happen did. It, it took far too long and in my view uh, that was to the detriment of the peace process because yeah. it destroyed the Unionist Party. Well it destroyed David Trimble's mm. Ulster Unionist Party yeah. I think that's fair to say um, but at the same time... And it my, gave sucker to the DUP. Yes, but it actually gave Sinn Féin something to negotiate with when they came up to dealing with the DUP when it became the majority unionist party. They actually had something to trade with. Yeah, but holding on to weapons wasn't really... Uh, I don't think that was a very good way to operate um, because... Uh, um, it was a trading. I, I I believe the retention of weapons became a negotiating thing for for Sinn Fein, and and that wasn't good. That's not what we had in mind. We had imagine if there had been early decommissioning, say after two years, and I know it was difficult for Sinn Fein to guarantee or to bring about uh, IRA decommissioning of weapons, but there was a process there. Had they been able to do it earlier, I think it would have transformed politics in Northern Ireland. It would have meant that um, perhaps David Trimble might have survived. The DUP wouldn't have gained so many seats uh, and we wouldn't have the, the, the problems we have now with the dysfunction in Northern Irish politics. But going back to Seamus Mallon and what he wrote or recalled in his memoir about essentially being left outside the door while Tony Blair talked at length uh, to, to, to Sinn Féin. Uh, I think it was in Hillsborough and there was a confrontation and, and Blair just turned to him and said, look Seamus, your problem is you don't have guns. Yeah, which which was an awful thing to say to, to Seamus Mallon and the STLP because uh, they had been so so adamant and and enduring in their opposition to violence um and uh, John Hume I think reckless to the I suppose the reckless to the survival of his own party he had started that process of engagement with Sinn Fein it was probably the right thing to do but it was to the detriment of his party uh, and uh, I think it was very unfortunate that that Seamus Mallon felt excluded uh, and felt not included in, you know, the final settlement because it was all about decommissioning. You see, there was two polit- there was two things going on. There was ending the war, which was one stream, and then there was putting together, um, you know, 
a, substitu- a whole new governance of Northern Ireland and the political arrangements between um, North South and East West, uh, and that was that was fine. But progress on the decommissioning, um, you know, halted progress on the political. Yeah, stuff. but it may well have been that Adams and McGuinness as the political front for the Republican movement. Uh, okay, you, you, you can talk about you know their their other roles as well, but. They wanted it to to happen, but maybe they just had trouble persuading people, you know, on the Army Council to go ahead with it. And it was more important in the wider interest to maintain unity in the Republican movement and get it done maybe more slowly than everybody wanted than to have a, a really serious split. Yeah, uh, that's true. That's true. It was important, but they did have a split in the end anyway. Look at OMA. The worst atrocity of the Troubles happened uh, only four months after the agreement, which broke my heart. I mean, I've, I always remember that day. Um, I will never forget it. Uh, all of us who had been close to the process were devastated by the OMA bomb. Um, at, we thought we'd been sold a pup. We thought this is here we are back again after all we've achieved uh, this is an IRA bomb again. I mean, subsequently it was dissidents, uh, of course, but that didn't make it any better for the victims or for us who felt responsible for, um, you know, the the, la- the, la- the lessening of security and the demilitarisation mm. that had gone on in the intervening months. It was stop, start, stop, start um, because of decommissioning and other things. Um, and eventually then after uh, I think it was St. Andrews and 2007, there was decommissioning and there was an administration and Paisley and McGuinness got on famously. And then Robinson uh, came along. Um, and as of now, the um, the whole thing is stalled again because of, uh, I suppose, largely goes back to Brexit yeah. and the border down the Irish Sea. Things that were utterly unforeseeable when the Good Friday Agreement no, of uh, was Of all the things we talked about, and we, I think we covered every angle. I mean, the talks in, in relation to Northern Ireland went on for years. And I think we, uh, the officials and, and the politicians, uh, you know, contemplated every possible angle. But nobody ever once thought that the UK would leave the EU. In fact, we actually presumed that uh, and stitched into the agreement um, aspects of EU legislation and uh, EU, uh, the UK continuing because it was all about free movement of peoples. It had blurred the border. Uh, the border wasn't an issue. Uh, so, And if Britain had gone into the single currency as appeared likely or at least eminently possible at one stage if Blair had got his way with Brown, effectively you had economic unity on this yeah, island. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, it was Brexit was a disaster. I think it will turn out to be a disaster for the United Kingdom, but you have to accept that that's the will of the people in in the UK. But it was a disaster for the peace process. There was no thought by British ministers at the time uh, of the implications for Northern Ireland and the peace process. It it was unbelievably reckless uh, in relation to Northern Ireland. So we've now reached the stage where it's fait accompli. Even uh, Keir Starmer is saying, look, that's not a debate to be reopened. Um, And then we have this continuing stalemate in Northern Ireland with the Assembly and uh, the executive and so forth. But do you you see that? Do you see that that being cracked in the relatively near future? I would hope so, yeah. I think the major um, trade problems um, post-Brexit have been... uh, more or less settled by this, the Windsor framework uh, by Rishi Sunak, which was great to have uh, a proper prime minister in 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 power to do that. You know, um, the grown-ups in in Downing Street uh, after a very difficult period. So uh, that has been settled, but it, it doesn't automatically mean that uh, the DUP will go into government. They still have some outstanding issues. I think 
Jeffrey Donaldson will do it um, because his vote has held up in the local elections. Um, um, and I, I believe there is a willingness amongst the people of Northern Ireland, I think, as, as articulated in the, in the, the local elections, uh, a, will, a, a willingness to make politics in Northern Ireland work. And I know um, uh, Sinn Féin are, are very, very anxious to, to get uh, to make it work. And that's, that has been their message. And I hope I hope Michelle O'Neill um, and Geoffrey Donaldson or whoever he, 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 he nominates to be um, Deputy First Minister, I hope that happens. Yeah, and then you'll have a situation where in the relatively near future, by which I mean maybe three years from now, it's entirely possible that you would have a Sinn Féin First Minister in Northern Ireland and a Sinn Féin Head of Government, Atishuk, in this state. How do you see that evolving? It's quite possible. Um, uh, It it may well happen. And there would be a big push. I mean, they're already talking about it, uh, about uh, moving on now to having this border poll that's provided for in the Good Friday Agreement. It's true that there there is provision for a border poll um, uh, as part of the aspiration towards an uh, Irish unity politically achieved. Um, That's true. I think it's premature. I I think we need to get the North settled down and bedded down uh, to to normal politics in Northern Ireland before there's ever talk because the people are still divided, very divided. There's still quite a lot of sectarian divisions in Northern Ireland. Uh, The parties are not working as they should. They're not working together, uh, cooperating on domestic policy. So I think it's just much too much too early. Um, I would say 15 years time maybe uh, would be the appropriate time. Yeah. But I, I, I don't think this decade is a good idea. Yeah, it's like, uh, well, there's what, seven years of that left then. Um, somebody made the observation to me recently that uh, it's not so much power sharing as the division of power that's been at work uh, in Northern Ireland since the agreement. Uh, that's probably a fair assessment, is it? Well, unfor- it's very unfortunate that the, you know, that the institutions that were set up under the agreement, which were a very important part of the, of the agreement, Strand 2, and I negotiated those, it's very unfortunate that Strand 2, North-South, ha- haven't been operating at all. Uh, and the institution, Strand 1, has only operated fitfully, I think, half of the time since the, the Good mm-hmm. Friday Agreement. And that's, that's really a great a source of great regret to me because it was through working together the parties of Northern Ireland and sharing power um, that they would get to know each other and that they would get to live together uh, in an enduring peaceful situation and build the economy that was John Hume's dream and Seamus Mallon's dream yeah. um, and that was the that was the dream of, of the people who negotiated that, the agreement As a young political correspondent with the Irish press I cut my teeth in the early 1980s on the New Ireland Forum uh, which looked at various modalities and uh, it was a way of drawing the SDLP um, into uh, some sort of political engagement and indeed um, assuring nationalists that the government here in this state cared about the alienation. That was the great Peter Barry phrase mm. that he kept on repeating. But uh, and it came up with you know, various studies. Is it time to go back to something you know along those lines? Uh, I mean, Sean O'Higgin, who was a, a, a very senior government diplomat, uh, now retired, of, of course, talked about maybe we should have these kind of studies carried out on the implications of unity, what the health service would look like, what education would look like and various other issues, at least to be starting to do that kind of preparatory work. Oh yes, I think we should be starting to look at those institutional issues um, for the future. Um, but the, the danger is if you start if you start kind of putting a border pole up in lights, there is a danger that you 
actually prolong the dysfunction in Northern Ireland in terms of politics and also frighten um, loyalists who feel uh, a bit abandoned and left out and excluded. It's a great pity that the loyalist parties did not survive electoral politics after the agreement. Um, at the time of the agreement, the government uh, was was supportive of the notion of um, facilitating both the Women's Coalition and the other smaller parties, the people who had helped to make the mm-hmm. agreement, that they would be helped to be sustained in future uh, to implement the agreement. And it's a great pity that the loyalist parties didn't survive um, because I think they they lack leadership at the moment, um, and that's that's something that we shouldn't take for granted. That there there's a lot of discord amongst loyalism at the moment. So, I think we need to get politics in Northern Ireland back working and normalised, and everybody included, and prosperity, which was, you know, the dividend of peace. It should be prosperity for all in Northern Ireland. Should be the dividend, and that's that hasn't happened yet. Yes, but I suppose the great thing, and you probably felt this when you were in Belfast recently for that. Big conference in Belfast on the anniversary of the agreement. It's a much more relaxed place. It's a much more thriving place in Northern Ireland. People aren't being killed like we, we were reading and hearing every morning. You know, we, we turn on the radio to hear about another atrocity or shooting and so forth. Um, that's very, very much the exception now, uh, albeit though there was the recent uh, attempt to, to kill the RUC officer uh, in uh, County Tyrone. But these are matters of life and death. You're still concerned with another matter of life and death, which is road safety um, and as you said at the start uh, you're coming to the towards the end of your second five year term it's an area on which huge progress has been made but has it kind of stalled of late? Huge progress as you say it's been a great privilege to chair the Road Safety Authority since 2014 um, I took over from Gay Byrne uh, and Sean, you and I will remember uh, the time when, in 1998, for example, when I was a minister, there were 458 people killed on Irish roads. Um, when I came in in 2014, it was 192 uh, that year, killed that year. Last year, we were down to 157. So we have been making huge progress. Initially, at the, at the front, at, at the beginning, we, we came down by 66% or something like that. Um, the last two years, we've seen a slight increase. Uh, so we're really working on that. We have a new road safety strategy um, to really kind of across all government departments, actually, because it's not just down to the Road Safety Authority. There are there are things to be achieved in justice and police enforcement um, and, and the health service, all sorts of things which it's influence... It's to reduce it road. by what, 50% over 50% the next 10 years? 50% by 2030, yeah. That's that's the ambitious plan. And I, I do think we can make it because we have made such great strides in the past um, and the figures are relatively low. I mean, one death is one death too many. It's a devastation for any family and for any community to lose a loved one in a crash. And most crashes are avoidable. Most crashes are avoidable. And that's what we're trying to do, you know, to prevent crashes, to change driver behaviour, to introduce more enforcement. Um, The Go Safe vans are fantastic. I mean, they show that, you know, they are really a deterrent. People slow down if they know there's a Go Safe van. So we are pushing for more Go Safe vans and average speed cameras. So there's a lot. Technology can help the guards enforce the law. Um, But it is about changing hearts and minds. Two of the big things uh, were the introduction of the NCT to check the... Yeah, safe cars, yeah. But probably far more important was the clampdown on drink driving. I mean, we've come a long way since the days of just two will do. Um, And young people in particular uh, take these things very, very seriously. But there's still 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 a bit of a hardcore, though, of people who will take the chance. 
Oh, there are. I mean, and we still have a, a prevalence of of. Uh, it's mostly drugs now. It drink and drugs. Uh, so that's that's uh, intoxicated driving, as we call it, uh, and that's one of the priorities this year. Actually, is to is to return to that focus because there's there's evidence that people are still drinking and driving, uh, not particularly young people, but um, uh, because there has been a cultural change in that there... in that regard. But drugs, I think uh, that's the problem. Young people think, well, I wouldn't dream of drinking and driving, but I'll have a joint. Uh, so we have roadside detection now for for drugs. So that has been very effective. But uh, I think at one stage last year, there were more detections for drug driving than there were for drinking. There's driving. another sign that we see from time to time. It's that tiredness kills. Yeah. Now, I think I've noticed on the motorways is that there are a lot of these laybys and they're closed off. You can't pull into them if you wanted to have just take 40 winks or get out and have a breath of fresh air. Why is that? Well, I don't know. It's one of the actions in our uh, road safety strategy is to include, you know, the the the, the National Roads Authority and um, you know the, all the local county councils to make sure that fatigue is actually a very serious thing. I think there's a one in four chance of you having a crash uh, if you're fatigued. And and we, you know this stop and sip the coffee. We always have that on the week bank holiday weekends. Apple Green supports us. You know to stop, have a little nap, have a cup of coffee, a short nap, even of 15, 20 minutes, and uh, but I, I know myself coming back from Mayo, I, I almost fell asleep at the wheel because I was exhausted. We'd had a board meeting and we'd had a late uh, a late dinner. And the following day, I was just exhausted. The Mayo coming back from Mayo from a, a board meeting and uh, I felt myself dozing, uh, which is shocking, actually. And it made me realise how dangerous a thing fatigue is, particularly for professional drivers, which is why we have uh, those tachometers to, to, the, to, to make sure they yeah, don't overstay their driving. The, the last thing I want to ask you about, though, in road safety, Liz, is, you know, th- things like e-scooters and e-bikes. I, I was in a, a store recently, uh, not too far from here, where there were e-bikes that will do um, 55 kilometres per hour and these are things that you see in cycle lanes I mean there's a new one now out the road there between uh, Sandy Cove and Black Rock in South Dublin maybe it goes on for what three or four miles and you know you see children with helmets being carefully nurtured along by their parents kids in their you know sort of be they eight or nine and then you see fellas in Lycra coming along on, on, on high speed racing cycles and then you see people on these scooters or these e-bikes I mean is there any regulation going oh, on? Well, there is. I mean, we've taken a very conservative approach to e-scooters. Uh, I mean, the government is very supportive of these in terms of sustainable travel and uh, emissions and carbon emissions and all of that. And it, it's they're part of life now. But the, the Road Safety Authority and me personally, I've taken a very, very conservative approach. Uh, we have advised the government that they should not be allowed to go over 20 kilometres per hour. Uh, we have advised helmets. The government isn't in favour of that. They want it to be voluntary. Um, no under 16s, they've accepted that. Um, and never on footpaths and also single use. And now, at the moment, people, they're illegal still. The bill hasn't come through the House yet. It's, it's only recently. It now has to go to the European Commission. Uh, but in other countries where they had a very conser- they had a very liberal approach to them in Belgium and Holland uh, and to Spain, they've changed their minds completely uh, and have introduced much more conservative regulations. And that's what I hope that we will do. Keep it very conservative. To borrow a phrase from a previous election, a lot done, more to do, Liz O'Donnell. What are you going to do? You've got another year, a little bit more uh, on that uh, chairpersonship of the RSA. What are you going to do with your life then? I don't know. I might write a book. 
happen. I don't know. Um, but I, I've recently joined as chair of the Irish Emergency Alliance, which is an emer- which is an alliance of um, several big uh, aid agencies here in Ireland, uh, so that there can be a kind of collaboration and a joint effort for fundraising when there's a, an emergency, an international emergency, such as the Turkey Syria earthquake. That was the most recent one. So I'll be working with them for the next three years. But that's a voluntary um, commitment as well. Well, good luck with that and other endeavours and ventures that you uh, embark upon. Liz O'Donnell, it's been an absolute uh, privilege to talk to you and most interesting. Thank you indeed for coming. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.